Benjamin Grosvenor, welcome to All Classical Portland. I'm John Pittman. It's great to have you here again. You and I spoke a couple of years ago about one of your uh, your other releases, so it's great to have another chance to uh, do so with your new recording here of the music of the Schumanns and some Brahms, too. Thanks. Now, you made as the major piece, it looks like, on this disc, Chrysleriana, uh, which is like Carnival, I think, kind of one of those pieces that's inspired by well, in Carnival's case, some of them were real people like Paganini and Chopin. Chrysleriana is a fictional character. I wonder if you could let our listeners know a little bit more about Schumann's piece and its inspiration. Sure. So um, it's inspired by uh, a character created by E.T.A. Hoffman, the writer, who um, Schumann admired um, hugely. And um, it's a guy called Johannes Chrysler, and he is a musician, um, a kind of romanticized idea of a tortured artist surrounded by people who don't understand him. Um, he had very high ideals. You know, he loved the music of the past of Bach and Beethoven. He hated the music of the time. He ha- hated Philistines in art. And he was given to, um, you know, extreme flights of fancy mood swings um he was incredibly temperamental um and i think schumann identified with this figure a lot i think he saw a lot of himself in it um um you know this this figure you know who was kind of sort of bipolar really i mean with and with these two extremes of his personality um and i think schumann also felt that he was you know held, held up these you know, with his work also as a critic, these um, these musical ideals, and he felt he he ha- he had a role to withhold these in society, and um, and Chrysler was was very much the same. Um, so yeah, there's all of this and that personality here in this piece. It's a piece of extremes. Sometimes there's this manic energy. I mean, it starts as if you've um, you've opened, you know, you've walked into a room and Chrysler's in the middle of improvising on the piano. That's sort of how it how it seems to begin. Uh, with this sort of this first movement, which is kind of like a, you could say like a sort of highly dissonant bra- a Bach prelude or something, and and you know it goes from there, uh, alternating between lyricism and 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 um, you know kind of extreme passion and energy and, uh, but you know he said it yes it was about Chrysler but he also saw it as about himself and about. Um, Clara, who became his wife, and um, their life together, and and also and, and very much about her. He said, you know, there are so many of your glances in this music, you and your glances, and uh, so it's a piece that is as much about himself and his life as it is about Chrysler, which shows how much he identified with this figure.
created his own Janus-like two-sided characters, uh, Floristan and Eusebius. Eusebius. And he just came up with that on his own. I'm not exactly sure who came first in this case, but, uh, but Schumann clearly was thinking a lot about how he was reacting to the world and to people around him with these different mood swings. Yeah, I mean, I, he found it was in his temperament, but he was also just fascinated with this idea of doubles, um, just generally, this idea of these, you know, opposed characters within something, um, which is there in Kreiser and in Hoffman's works. It was there in his own personality. This idea permeates a lot of his music. Um, in some of his earlier works, he, he would notate which movements were Floriston and which movements were um, Eusebius, but in Kreisiana he doesn't. So you have a feeling, like in Kreisiana he doesn't give away any of his musical secrets. Whereas in some of the works before, like Carnival, for example, um, he, uh, you know, he, he'd give, give things titles and, and um, give hints as to what things meant. Um, but in Kreisiana it's, it feels like he's left that behind and has the confidence just to put himself on the page and not to have to explain it further to people. How did you approach Chryslerian in the first place? Um, I mean, what's sort of the roadmap for you for a piece like this? It's It seems very different from a Beethoven sonata where you have four movements that are clearly, I mean, they're considered of a whole, but they're they're distinct between each other. This piece seems to be both combination, part literary inspired, part moodings inspired, and it's its structure is so so unlike other pieces, I think, of its time. Yeah, I mean, its its structure is quite diffuse, I suppose. I, I, as a listening experience, it's not like hearing a sonata. It's not that tight, as tightly organized as that, which is not to say it's disorganized, but, you know, it's a piece of extremes and, and, and a variety of different moods and emotion. And it's a completely unique journey. Um, I mean, there, you know, there, there are things that connect thematically through through the piece but it's essentially a sort of collection of character pieces you could say um but structurally it um basically it alternates between movements in g minor that are very energetic and um like the 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 opening prelude and then lyrical movements in b flat major so you have one three five and eight which are in g minor and then you have two four and six which are in b flat major so they're the sort of two, the, the, two, the characters in a way are indicated by the keys. Um, now the odd one out is is number seven, which is in C minor. And um, I, what's interesting is that in that in that one, you see the most of like Bach and Beethoven. It starts with this defiance and, and C minor is such a Beethovenian key, you know. Um, it starts with this kind of defiant writing, which is which seems to remind you of that, and then it has this kind of fugue, fugato section in the middle. I wonder whether that was kind of intentional, that um, departure in terms of key. That was um, like Chrysler saying, no, this is, you know, 
this is real music. I don't know what because his his stories of Chrysler from one in one of the books. He's like he he comes to his employer's tea party or something to entertain the guests, and he has a score of Bach's Goldberg variations, and they were like, "Oh, please play us the variations because they think it's like a set of variations on a f- popular theme of the time." <laughs> not really knowing what the Goldberg Variations is. And then, you know, he plays it for them and they're completely bemused. But then he plays the whole thing and then he keeps improvising wildly at the keyboard, frustrated at their lack of understanding and so on. So I think maybe number seven is an element, is an element of that. And then, and then the way that it ends, it sort of... Um, it reminds me a bit of the poet speaks and... and um, kinder scene and it's like this um, um, it's almost like the voice of Schumann comes at the end in this chorale so you know it's it's a piece I mean, you know it, it puzzled people at the time it puzzled Clara she she said she was frightened by it um, and uh, it's not you can't compare it to anything else in its narrative it's just completely unique yeah it's, you know it doesn't doesn't have anything in common with a sonata it's just um, it's just Chrysler it's just its own his own creation that's not like anything else. Benjamin, you do something here that I think is important to Schumann's story, and you already mentioned her, Clara Schumann, and you include Clara Schumann's music on this disc as well, because reading his life story, it almost seems like Schumann could not have existed or thrived without his life partner of Clara Schumann with him. Yeah, I think that's true, and it was also true for Brahms because, you know, um, he entered into their life, and very sh- soon afterwards, Schumann, you know, tried to commit suicide and end up in the asylum. So, the, you know, the real long-standing relationship that Brahms had in his life was more with Clara than with with Schumann, although Schumann was, you know, massive mentor and inspiration for him. Um, but yes, um, Clara was there through all of Schumann's musical endeavors you know once he decided not to study law and to um and to try to be uh try to be an artist and a musician he um was taught by clara's father and you know clara was there this gifted young prodigy um and he knew her from when she was a child and um they developed this relationship and um he, you know she was a massive source of inspiration for him and she was one of the you know, one of the towering figures of the century. She was, um, she had this amazing 61-year concert career. Um, you know, she was a composer, fine composer in her own right. Um, she could have done more in that respect, but she she seemed to rather think that women shouldn't be composers, which is, um, was kind of a surprising view. But she was a real inspiration for both of them. Yeah. And she wrote some very fine music, which more and more pianists like yourself, uh, there are others are bringing her music more and more to light. And you do so with a lovely little uh, romance or romanza, but also with a more substantial piece, uh, variations on a theme of her husband's, Robert Schumann, uh, which is her, her opus 20.
Yes, so uh, it's a set of variations on the same theme that Brahms uses in his Schumann variations. Um, so, the, you know, the, the theme is identical for both. It's a, it's a movement from um, Schumann's um, Bunterblätter, and, um, but then what they do with it is completely different. And I think this piece really shows her ingenuity as a pianist, you know, the, in the way that she develops the, and varies the texture uh, and, 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 and the colours um, in the music. But also she was more conservative in her writing than Brahms, for example. I mean, um, you could say less innovative, but you could see in this an enormous, enormous gift for harmonic ingenuity and the way that she varies the harmonies in subtle ways throughout you know, there's this subtle beauty here. Um, she does things that are unexpected and quite magical. Um, and you know, little counter voices, and I think it's a really, really fine set of variations. And I like the idea of pairing it with Robert's own variations on a theme by Clara, which comes from his third sonata. Um, they were published in the same year, and uh, it feels like it's, it's sort of an element of dialogue between between the two of them. Yeah, you're kind. Of, you're you're really bringing together these three figures, and I'm clu- including Brahms here across these different works. Uh, they're three so such influential figures in the 19th century, and I want to uh, bring you into it too, Benjamin. Um, as you you made an arrangement of one of Schumann's pieces here. Can you talk about that for a bit? The Abendlied. Yeah. So I mean, I didn't do much to it because it's a piece for four hands uh, for piano duet, and I made it a piece for two hands but to be honest you can almost play the whole thing as it is you have to spread some chords there's a bar too where you have to change some things in order to be able to just stretch everything so it's not much of a transcription so we say but i just think the work is so beautiful it's a bit like a it's almost like a prayer it's a very intimate kind of spiritual work and uh, it's become very popular i mean all kind of instrumentalists have played it i think and um I became familiar with it as a work for violin and piano. Um, there's an arrangement by Leopold Auer that I, I would play with often with a violinist and as an encore in our recitals. And um, I, yeah, I just think it's really beautiful. That's why I included it. There's not so much to say in terms of its significance as with some of the other pieces, but I don't know exactly. I mean, you, you one can imagine that as a piano duet piece, that maybe they might have played it together. Um, so in that way, the whole idea of it being a piano duet is, is also this element of kind of conversation between two figures, which which is um, something that, you know, is, is a kind of theme in the album. Benjamin, I often like to ask a musician when they have a new recording out, what was the jumping off point? What was what's at the what's at the orbital center of of the idea of what you want to put on a recording? And then how does that inspiration grow? Did you start maybe with Chrysleriana and then it started to develop and you started to think, well, what about when they did this, for example? So I started with Chrysleriana and then it, I came to Brahms because I wanted 
to alongside Cries Rihanna, which is so diverse in its emotional content, um, I wanted music that was more kind of centered and, and settled in its atmosphere. And then I thought of late Brahms and I thought of Opus 117, which is music that is it's music written by an old man and which is yeah, you know, it's, it's it's kind of filled with grief and I mean he called them lullabies for his sorrows. It's uh you know, he's brooding on, on a life that has passed and um um, and it's kind of monologue, monologue in an incredibly intimate conversation as if as if he's just talking to one person, which, I, you know, maybe he was because the first person to hear them, of course, was Clara and he sent he sent them to her. So there's something hugely intimate about that. And it's incredibly contrasted to this music in Kreisriana by young Schumann, which is just filled with you know, testosterone and energy and, and just leaping off the page. And then you have, you know, the other end of the extreme, you have um, this old man th- reflecting on his life. Um, so that was, that. they're the foundations of the disc, the, those two pieces um, kind of opposed to each other. And then I thought about ways to connect them. And of course, there's so many ways and places to go. Um, something I, I thought I really liked the significance of, I mean, the idea of the two sets of variations as a kind of conversation between the two composers, but they were published in the year that Brahms walked into their life, um, turned up on their doorstep. So um, to me, that felt quite significant. And um, I, I, I liked that as a, as a thematic connection. Uh, I also liked uh, just is a however tenuous connection here it is to the British Isles, but uh, I read that the score for the E-flat intermezzo is prefaced by Two lines from an old Scottish ballad, Lady Anne really, Bothell's Lament. Exactly, yeah, and I mean it. it really is uh, the 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 music is set to those words. Really, I mean it's there in the pattern of the first four bars in, in the in the rhythmic pattern of the first four bars. I mean you can recite the words to the music if you if you if you wish to do so. Um, so, um, but it's uh, yeah, it's a lullaby, but with this middle section which is just. It's just so grieving. Um, it's, yeah, it's really, really touching and moving works, but quite dark. It seems to me that he that he survived Clara Schumann. I, I may be wrong about that, but it seems like Clara died before Brahms. Yeah, but she was older, a little older than him, yeah. Yeah. 
Well, it's it's a lovely, poignant way to end your your program and your and I was thinking about the number of decades between Robert Schumann, Clara Schumann, and Brahms. The music that you you've recorded spans a huge amount of the 19th century. I mean, 70 years at least, I would think. Uh, yeah, and you know the three three figures that dominated the century um, in all in their own ways, um, and. You know, it's fascinating that their lives were so intertwined. Benjamin Grosvenor, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you again, and really excited to be looking forward to sharing the recordings on our here on All Classical Portland and our conversation with our listeners as well. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. <laughs>